You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce our guest today. It is Anish Chopra, and he is the first Chief Technology Officer of the United States of America. Pretty cool title. And he reports directly to the President of the United States. We had a chance to spend a little bit of time with him before, and his job is truly fascinating. I'm going to let him tell you all about the details and all of the fabulous plans that he has in place for all of us. Anish. Thank you very much. Yeah. So my job this afternoon is to convince all of you that there's never been a better time to be an innovator. And if I'm really successful, I'm going to convince you to be an innovator in some of the key areas that have plagued our country for months and years. Areas like our healthcare system, our energy system, and our educational system. To get us started, I'm going to provide for you a little bit of a roadmap for the discussion. And then I, of course, look forward to the conversation through Q&A we'll have after my remarks. My intention is to begin with a conversation about the strategy for American innovation that the president had unveiled in September of 2009. It's the document that guides the bulk of my work. Second, I want to provide for you a framework for three concrete challenges where we need you as entrepreneurs to help us. And last but not least, I want to provide for you a series of case studies that demonstrate this commitment to innovation that has been a key pillar of the president's strategy to change the way Washington works. So with that, I want to start with my first homework assignment. On the president's first full day in office, before he even unpacked the bag, so to speak, he issued a memorandum on open government. And he announced that his chief technology officer, would provide recommendations on how we would make our government more transparent, more participatory, and more collaborative. Now, I had not yet been named, but the homework assignment was daunting. It was to translate the philosophy that had governed his life, the notion of bottom-up change, into a bureaucracy that may not have been as accepting, if you will, of such change. I saw this firsthand, I wanted to share my first story with you on a very personal, on a very personal anecdote. I, of course, you could tell from my name, Anish Chopra, my parents come from India. I was born in Trenton, New Jersey. And I had the pleasure of traveling to India with our president in November of 2010. And in fact, inaugurated the president's India-U.S open government strategic dialogue. The basis for that dialogue was born in this graphic that you can barely see depending on where you are. It's a picture of the president having a conversation with one of the most rural villages in a state called Rajasthan. The backstory is as follows. The government of India has made connectivity to rural communities a priority. And the Chief Technology Officer equivalent, a gentleman by the name of Sam Petroda, had been putting in place a strategy to bring fiber connectivity and 4G WiMAX towers to each of the rural villages throughout India. There are about 250,000 of them. They're called panchayats. And the first one of these had been lit up in time for the president's visit. We were in Mumbai, which is a, a, a major metropolitan area. And before the president addressed the students at St. Xavier's College, he had the chance to walk through an expose of all of these innovative uses of open technology in the advancement of democracy in India, culminating in this conversation that he had with individuals that lacked access to indoor plumbing or what you and I would consider to be traditional infrastructure. Yet they had 4G. And it had transformed their lives. A nurse told the president how now she has access to information to know exactly which kids in the village to reach to make sure that they were on track with their health care. 
A student, not unlike many of you in this room, had the chance to communicate uh, and take actually an MBA program, Tina, an MBA program from this village without having to travel and leave his family. And it was in this context where the president spoke about a very interesting phenomenon that openness and technology have enabled around the world. The concept of leapfrog. The president saw all of this and was thinking to himself, what will this infrastructure do to think about the healthcare system, the energy system, and the educational system for that village? And he remarked about the power in some of these emerging markets where you'll see that leapfrogging off of what we have today in our 20th century infrastructure. It's a lot of what governs our thinking about changing the way Washington works. It also infuses this notion of what is our long-term economic growth strategy. As I mentioned to you at the outset of my remarks, it was in September of 2009, the president traveled to a community college in upstate New York. It was my first trip on Air Force One, which I must tell you was a very cool experience. <laughs> calling your wife and the military guy calls and says, will you take a call from Air Force One? <laughs> I scored some points that day. Uh, anyway, the uh, community college was the backdrop. Students in their all ages, 30, 40, 50 years old, going back to school to study how they could win in a clean energy economy and what they can do to gain jobs in healthcare. And the president spoke to them and he said, I see the role of government in three parts when thinking about this long-term economic story that is America. First, that America is at its best when we invest in the building blocks of innovation. Now, the building blocks of innovation historically have been infrastructure, roadways, railways, runways. But now it's increasingly digital infrastructure, wireless technology, 4G, the comment that I made about what we saw in India, critical infrastructure for a thriving economy. We also speak about human capital, making sure that we graduate more students that have college degrees, ensuring that we have a higher share of those students focusing on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it's also about a research and development pipeline to make sure that the industries of the future are thought about in our universities today and all of you have the chance to engage. The second pillar of the president's strategy is to ensure that we have the right market conditions to promote Innovation and entrepreneurship. That is setting the rules of the road, ensuring we have a patent system that works, getting some of the new rules on the internet right around cybersecurity and privacy, thinking about how we cultivate more communities of entrepreneurs through a program I'll talk about called Startup America. But last and certainly not least, the part that occupies a great deal of my time is that the president identified a few areas where we need to catalyze breakthroughs. And it's through an all-hands-on-deck philosophy that we believe we can achieve these breakthroughs. Yes, we need entrepreneurs to invent a better healthcare system and a be better educational system and the like, but we also need a public sector that is a nice receptacle or a partner that will effectively work with these entrepreneurs so that we can, we can see those new ideas uh, reach the market and eventually scale. And so in this domain, I focus a lot of my time on health, energy, and education. And you'll hear more about that as I go through my remarks. But let me begin with that first piece of infrastructure, that notion of wireless connectivity. I'm going to share with you a graphic that was presented by McKinsey maybe three or four, maybe now two months ago, two or three months ago. And it looked at the American economy, and it identified the fact that productivity growth highly correlates with GDP growth. That is, sectors of the U.S. economy that can deliver productivity gains will actually help us achieve an overall economic growth position. What this graph shows you, though, is that few sectors of the U.S. economy have accounted for a disproportionate share of our productivity growth. And it's the sectors that you know, computers and the like, that have achieved Moore's Law consistently, and other sectors that have incorporated the kind of pressures that... Uh, uh, that is the story of productivity. But I've circled three on this graphic that have been either flat to negative on productivity growth. Government as a sector, healthcare as a sector, and education as a sector, together accounting for 20% of the nation's GDP. If we are to achieve the long-term economic growth prospects, we will have to do so by unlocking these hidden opportunities 
uh, for productivity gains. And one insight as to how one achieves productivity gains in a sector is in an MIT study that was published even earlier than that this year, looking at how firms in an industry outperform each other and in incorporates the notion that data, data-driven organizations, data-driven decision-making, allows those firms to be much more productive. In fact, they found that companies that are instrumented actually can achieve 5 to 6% productivity gains. So one of the themes in this question about wireless infrastructure is also a theme around liberating information so we can instrument sectors of the economy. More on that in a moment. The second pillar, if you will, of the strategy for American innovation I referenced was the notion of competitive markets for, for entrepreneurship. And here I'd like to highlight an initiative the president rolled out in January called Startup America. And more specifically, a symbiotic relationship between the public sector and the private sector. The Startup America program begins with a nonprofit organization called the Startup America Partnership, led by the chairman of the board, Steve Case, and a recent recruit to serve as CEO, the inaugural CEO, Scott Case, no relation, who serves, uh, who had served as one of the founders of Priceline out here in the Valley. And the Startup America Partnership has emphasized new programming to fill the void when it comes to helping entrepreneurs uh, in the various stages that they're in, whether it be in identifying a new idea, getting that idea into a formal business, early growth in that enterprise, and then what they call the speed-up phase when those organizations tend to hit their cycle and hit, uh, many of us would find that to be a very exciting opportunity, but it requires a different approach. Startup America Partnership has been cultivating privately financed or nonprofit organized and delivered mentorship programs, uh, training and education initiatives, and other support systems so that entrepreneurs at various stages of life and growth have the resources they need to be more successful. In addition, this external partnership, the nonprofit Startup America Partnership, is encouraging larger corporations, we might call this a big co to new co relationship, to open up their supply chains and invite startups in. And you can see if you visit startupamericapartnership.org, just the sheer number of companies that have pledged to expand their relationship with startups. And if you go down the roster, it's the names you know, it's IBM, it's HP, it's Microsoft, and Google, and all the rest. And as an example of this uh, concept of cultivating privately financed, privately organized initiatives under the banner of Startup America, not too long ago in the Research Triangle Park community outside of Duke and UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Blackstone Entrepreneur Network put up $3.5 million to hire, quote, master entrepreneurs to coach young folks in those communities in and around the Research Triangle Park to deliver over five years an estimated 17,000 new jobs. Again, not a nickel of taxpayer dollars, but inspired by the president's call to promote and celebrate entrepreneurship organized by this external nonprofit. But it's also about us doing our jobs in Washington. There are two components of the Startup America program that are relevant to the discussion. One is inventorying the regulatory burdens that have been a hindrance to startups in all fields. The president signed an executive order earlier this year allowing for regulatory flexibility for small businesses. And we conducted a road show around the country and a website, reducingbarriers.ideascale.com, where entrepreneurs fed us information about where they found barriers so that we might address them in the coming months. But it's also the part that I care the most about, the part that I'm responsible for in Startup America, and that is to find ways in which the policymakers in Washington might actually open up new markets, unleash new market opportunities. I was actually here on the Stanford campus in March. That's that picture. I brought the uh, inaugural director of ARPA-E, which is our research and development arm for breakthroughs in clean energy. You'll hear about that in a minute. 
And we came to visit Stanford and had a town hall meeting to hear from entrepreneurs directly, how are our policies impacting the real world? Are they working? Are they not? What more can we do? And these programs we formalized under the banner of DC to VC, coined by Morgenthaler Ventures. I take no credit for the branding of this initiative. Uh, Morgenthaler did this in the area of healthcare uh, in the fall, and we've scaled it to energy and education. But this concept of inspiring entrepreneurs to come into these key sectors of the economy that need their help because they need to demonstrate productivity growth and that we need them to solve our bigger challenges as a nation is a theme I'm going to be coming back and back and back to throughout this presentation. Before I move to the three levers that we use to pull uh, these breakthroughs out in energy, health, and education, I did want to pause for a moment and talk a bit about our immigration system. How many of you in this room are students here under some form of immigration status? Probably from the hands, maybe 15%. I want to speak to you because on a personal level, this is how my father came to this country. As an engineer at Villanova, dad holds three patents. And because he had the opportunity to pursue the American dream, we have the chance to be in this gay country. I have the job reporting to the President of the United States in one generation. That's the story of America. We have a broken immigration system. And the President, just a few weeks back, called on all of us to have a civil conversation to talk about why and how we can move this conversation forward and actually fix what's broken. The president spoke at length about the broad, comprehensive nature of this challenge, but he highlighted the importance of high-skilled immigration, and he introduced a set of policy initiatives that we stand for as an administration that we believe speak to all of you. For example, how about we staple a green card when you graduate with a PhD or a master's in STEM fields? What about a startup visa program that allows you to stay in this country if you can raise the capital and scale up a business hiring American workers? How about we fix the legal immigration system to clear out the backlog and to address some of the challenges about how we allow families in or out through the legal system? And how do we strengthen that which works and fix what's broken in initiatives like the H-1B program? President has called for all of this to happen. It's personal for me because I added in there the picture of me when I was 11. I visited India for the first time. That's my little, that's my dad's village. No indoor plumbing, typical at the time. They were refugees when uh, India and Pakistan uh, bifurcated at the turn uh, uh, of India's independence and Pakistan's independence. And so this is a real challenge for our country and to the 15% of you in the room, the president understands and has called for us to address this and has many of you in mind when we look to fix this system. Now, I'd like to spend a chunk of time providing for you what we're calling the investor's thesis around these three big challenges. I want to spend some time here because this is where I want to recruit you as much as I wish to lecture for you about our policies and objectives. And I'm going to start with the investor's thesis around how we will transform the American healthcare system. As you all know, we've passed several pieces of legislation that will, in my opinion, fuel this investor's thesis. The first piece of legislation actually happened within two months that the president took office. It was our Recovery Act. And as many of you know, the Recovery Act was emphasizing how do we get people back to work. But the President included in the Recovery Act a portion of funds that would actually serve as the foundation for economic growth in sectors of the economy that hadn't seen the kind of breakthroughs that we've, we've been looking for. So he put a down payment on health care reform by calling for the digitization of the nation's health care system through the High Tech Act. $28 billion of investment to be spent over the next five to seven years to get hospitals and doctors to move from a paper-based record-keeping system to a digital record-keeping system. But that was not sufficient for the investor's thesis. 
to convince all of you to come in to what we believe to be a billion dollar industry. We followed that up with the Affordable Care Act. You might know this as health reform. Health reform meant a lot of things to a lot of people, but to entrepreneurs, I would like to highlight some of the most important provisions. Chief among them, the fact that we've provided the tools to the administration to once and for all shift the American payment system in healthcare from one that focuses on volume to one that focuses on value. And in a capitalist society, you get what you pay for. As my friends remind me, if you incentivize volume, you're going to get a lot of visits, a lot of procedures, a lot of activity. What you're not going to get are things that are not counted in volume, like care coordination, advising folks to stay healthy, making sure that they stay out of the emergency room. In volume, that would be a negative factor. You'd actually be disincentivized. But as we move the healthcare system to one that focuses on outcomes, quality, or value, you start to open up a market for new products and services. As we look at the Affordable Care Act, we've got several bites at the apple. First, Congress has provided some explicit authorities to launch tests for new payment systems right now. Programs called medical homes and accountable care organizations and bundling payments and readmission reduction programs. What these programs basically do is to say to a provider or a group of individuals that form a provider collaborative that if you can keep someone healthier, keep their quality up and uh, treat them better at lower cost, you get to financially benefit in that program. We'll augment your traditional mechanisms for reimbursement with a bonus payment, if you will, because you were able to keep someone healthier. Now, think for a moment about today's healthcare system. The provider is reacting to the patients who call to schedule a visit. And they work the schedule. And the software companies that have been very successful are those that have made scheduling better. And contrary, you want to make billing better because once you schedule and you visit someone, you want to pay, get paid for the bill. So we have a great and robust market for products that schedule and bill in healthcare. But if you are to shift the system to focus on value, you start looking at the patients, you start looking at the list of patients that are in front of the doctor and you ask the question, of the 2,000 patients that you treat, which 30 do you want to see today? Because they're most likely to need an intervention, a hospital admission or a surgical procedure or something that's a bit more on the acute side in the near future. Imagine the technologies one would need to shift the schedule around from people coming into you to you proactively reaching them and inviting them into the clinic so that you could treat them. You need much better data mining tools, care coordination tools, patient engagement tools, tools that provide decision support so that the decisions you make when you refer them to another provider are done focused on value and quality. Those products and services have not had the business case or an investor's thesis heretofore because they were not reimbursable. Today, now that the law has passed, we are starting to see this new market come forward. Entrepreneurs who previously might have focused on the consumer web are now wondering, hey, wait a minute, maybe I could apply those concepts in keeping people healthy. What if I shifted my focus to join a startup whose mission objective was to keep people out of the hospital, keep them healthier, and make billions of dollars along the way? We would say, hallelujah. You deserve to be a billionaire. But could you imagine being a billionaire and solving the healthcare crisis at the same time? I'll take you for lunch in the White House mess. These innovations need a market that allows them to scale. 
And one of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act that allows us to do this is a very interesting provision that says if we can demonstrate through pilot tests and programs that these new payment models have led to a better healthcare experience to our seniors, the Medicare Department and the Secretary of Health and Human Services has the legal authority to scale that payment model throughout the entire reimbursement system without having to go back to Congress. That's giving investors more confidence that their products, which they believe in their heart, will fuel this value-driven healthcare system, that they have a chance to see the revenue model, the business case, come to fruition. Complement this change in payment. Remind you that I mentioned the fact that we're digitizing the healthcare system. And now look at two other phenomenon. Number one, the medical records that are in the doctor's office that are moving from print, from record-based, uh, from paper-based to, to digital. We're now developing interoperability standards so that that information can be liberated so that entrepreneurs, in a safe, secure, privacy-oriented way, can start to understand that information and put it to use. And it turns out Washington has a ton of data on how we instrument the healthcare system that's been locked up in proverbial vaults for far too long, but as part of our open government initiative, we are liberating. Liberating at no cost to the taxpayer, at no cost to uh, intellectual property constraints, so that entrepreneurs can have that information and use it to build new products and services. In fact, on June 9th, I would invite all of you to a webcast at the Institute of Medicine, where we'll celebrate the best and the brightest of these startups who are taking this open health data and putting it to work to build the healthcare delivery system of the future. All of this is available for you today, health.data.gov. And it's not just the information that's in the government's vaults. We're actually compelling the sector to publish more quality data and even some patient satisfaction data. I learned, for example, we have in our database whether or not a patient slept well at night in the hospital. Tina, do you know? Which hospital has the best customer satisfaction in this community? I don't. Well, we have that data for you. One of these entrepreneurs is going to go in that database, and they're going to grab it, and they're going to say, Tina, we're going to provide for you a map to the most customer-friendly hospitals in the community because it's freely available, and they're going to have fun doing it. So this is the investor's thesis in healthcare: that as we shift the payment system, as we liberate data, both from the provider level and from our public sector in terms of open data, that we can fuel <coughs> new products and services that will make a ridiculous amount of money and solve our nation's healthcare problems at the same time. Wouldn't that be nice? Second, I'd like to talk about our educational system. Now, how many of you know the size of the United States educational system, the K-12 market? It is roughly the size of the U.S. pharmaceutical sector. Now, anybody know what percentage of revenues the pharmaceutical sector reinvests in research and development? Anybody want to take a guess? It's about 17% of revenues are reinvested in research and development. Now, how many of you would like to guess, or could anybody please tell me, what percentage of revenues in our K-12 system are reinvested in R&D? Does anybody know? what the R&D engine is for our K-12 system? 0.1%. The K-12 system is largely the same as it was at the turn of the 20th, 19th, maybe even 18th century. Teacher, instruction, classroom. What are we going to do to move this system to a 21st century model that emphasizes mastery of the learning of the material over the seat time in the class? As we move from print to digital learning objects, we will start to see this shift from seat time to mastery. And what is it that we're going to be doing in Washington? We're going to try to fix that research and development pipeline. The president has called for an ARPA for education and has seeded it with $90 million in the proposed fiscal 2012 budget to design breakthroughs in learning. The president gave a speech at Tech Boston Academy with Melinda Gates and he called for the following vision. A digital tutor that's as effective as your best personal tutor, 
and as engaging as the best video game. Someone will build that digital tutor, that person will make a billion dollars, and they will solve the American educational system, again, earning a lunch at the White House mess. <laughs> We've seen this in action. DARPA, who believes in a high-quality workforce, invested in a program called Education Dominance. It's DARPA, it's the military. They can call it Educational Dominance. And they studied the best teachers in the United States. And what they found was you don't record the lecture and push play. It isn't about finding the best lecturer. The best teachers personalize the instruction based on the needs of the student. So what this meant was we need a whole new machine learning system that understands how the child learns and serves up the right learning object based on the style of the, 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 the student's needs and the material that's relevant at the time. Now, we have yet to invent this at scale, but Education Dominance did a prototype. They took kids that were 17 years old into the Navy, 16 weeks of training through this program at their pace. They outperformed veterans who'd been on the job for seven years in IT networking skills. We're going to scale up the R&D engine. We're also trying to find ways to scale new ideas by introducing an innovation pipeline management program. We call it the Invest in Innovation Fund. Second year of that program's coming up. It allows entrepreneurial ideas to come forward to close the achievement gap, test those new ideas, and validate them through some kind of market uh, assessment, and then allow us to scale the best and the brightest of those ideas throughout the country. Over 1,700 applications came in for 49 slots, but in the spirit of open government, the president, which our program required a 20% match, the president called on the philanthropic community. Over 40 charities came together with a common application. In 30 days, when we, when we listed the names of the 49 finalists and told them they had 30 days to get their 20% match, this single application and a web portal called the Foundation Registry i3.org surfaced $63 million, a majority of the match generated. Now, what's even more exciting about this? JP Morgan has a donor-advised fund. Individuals, high net worth individuals logged into the portal and many of them personally contributed their uh, charitable dollars to support applications that came through the i3 fund. Programs that they never would have heard of before coming from every corner of the country available. And again, in the spirit of open government, data.ed.gov, you can download summaries of each and every one of the applicants in case you feel inspired to see what's out there in terms of new ideas that are worthy of your time and attention. The third challenge is to unleash a clean energy revolution. Earlier this morning, I gave a lecture at the Connectivity Week to talk about the importance to achieve the president's objective of 80% of our uh, energy sources coming from renewable energy by 2035. We need a modernized electrical grid that will allow us to incorporate these renewables. So the president has called for a modernized smart grid, and we need to find entrepreneurs who can come in and help turn this modernized grid into more energy efficiency, more grid reliability, and the ability to integrate these new renewable sources. Now, I'll give you an example. Again, in the spirit of research and development, we're investing in ARPA-E. Uh, ARPA-E found a non uh, an entrepreneur called Gene Sick, Genesick in uh, Northern Virginia. They're going to shrink today's transformer from an 8,000-pound beast with no intelligence in terms of smart electronics to a 100-pound suitcase with modern uh, uh, sensors so that it can start being an intelligent part of the network. Now, hopefully these prototypes, if you will, will demonstrate their efficacy and will start to enter the market and scale. But it's also about opening up new standards, standards for how you and I as consumers can grab hold of, of energy data. Just on this campus, Tina, on my walk here, I ran into these two high school students that came to visit me in Washington about a month and a half ago. These two students live here in Northern Virginia, I mean Northern California, and they asked their school system if they could invest a few thousand dollars to pull out the energy data in real time so they could see 
what they're consuming and when. And Tina, <laughs> the gym, would have the air conditioning go on at 2 a.m. And to their knowledge, there weren't a lot of students in school at 2 a.m. in the gym. By finding out that the control systems weren't quite working the way they were intended, they were able to adjust their HVAC, saving the school system $30,000 in a year. How many opportunities are we leaving on the table because we lack the knowledge of what's happening? How do you and I know our energy performance? We get a bill in the mail at the end of the month. And that's the degree to which we instrument our, our, our energy consumption. Ask Google and Facebook how much information they have on you right now. A little bit more than one piece of data a month. They're instrumenting your social graph. We need to instrument the energy sector, the healthcare sector, the education sector. And by doing so, open up opportunities for you as entrepreneurs and innovators to build the algorithms, the apps, the tools that would allow us to solve these challenges and move out of a political stalemate that has plagued Washington to a new model that allows us to achieve our objectives in the spirit of entrepreneurship by harnessing the power of technology, data, and innovation. And what I'd like to end in is a few stories of how we're doing this in Washington and how you might participate. Because it is our thesis right now that there's never been a better time to be an innovator. And that thesis is built on three ways we are tapping into the spirit that all of you uh, embody. Number one, the triple bottom line model. Have it your way, Burger King, whatever you want to call it. We're publishing data on data.gov. We have over 300,000 data sets freely available. Consume them, do whatever you want with them, and build valuable applications. Some of them might be for fun. My wife and I have two little kids. I have to install the infant car seat. It sucks. It's hard. You gotta squeeze the thing and you stick your knee in there and you gotta jam the thing in. Turns out a majority of Americans poorly install the infant car seat. Tina, did you know that the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration has a database of the ease of, 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 of implementation for every car seat sold in America? And did you know they have a database of every location that is certified to install that seat correctly? And when someone had heard about this problem, not unlike the students in this room today, a transportation camp attendee, that weekend having heard the problem, hacked an app, identifies your geolocation, and finds the nearest place where you can go to have that car seat installed safely and securely. Again, your data, Build the value, whatever you want. That's the American way. Second, we love Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky has written a book called Cognitive Surplus. That's what fuels people who want to voluntarily contribute to Wikipedia and open source projects. What if we could tap into the cognitive surplus in this room to solve health, energy, and education? You may not want to have a startup in this business, but you might have an idea. So we launched a web platform called challenge.gov to allow each and every one of you the chance to solve problems in teams without much headache or friction. Come on in and play. The first lady has one up there called the recipes for healthy kids, for chefs. Come up with the best recipes that keep school menus healthier. All the way to cool and innovative apps and products which we could talk about all day and night. Last, certainly not least, the stories that I'm gonna end with, and I'm gonna end with them rapidly that we have a philosophy in Washington. If we're gonna tap into your entrepreneurial spirit, we have to be responsive and kind because it turns out Washington can contribute to your entrepreneurial capabilities. We can release data, we can engage in standards activities, and we can invest in pre-competitive R&D collaboration. To manage all of this, we need the capacity, and so we've been recruiting people from the entrepreneurial sector into our uh, agencies. Example one. People that are building value on their own data. The Alford brothers from San Diego found out that 401k management fees vary tremendously based on the size of the company. If you work for a small business, you could pay five, seven, eight, ten percent management fees. You work for Stanford, you're probably paying one percent. They cumulatively added it all up and said four billion dollars of excess management fees are going to companies not into the pockets of, of uh, folks in their retirement. How do they find all this out? 
open data. The Labor Department collects the management fee information for every 401k plan in America. And thanks to President Obama's open government directive, we gave them that information in machine-readable format and got them the data they need to plot their diagrams and prove the, the problem. And now they've built a startup, hiring 30-some-odd people and growing, making a business out of closing that, uh, that you know, creating an arbitrage. Dr. David Van Sickle lives in Madison, Wisconsin, about an hour north, does not have broadband in his house, identified or built a chip on an asthma inhaler that calculates, it's a GPS chip, tells you where you're located and the time you pumped your, your asthma inhaler. By crowdsourcing that data, he finds environmental factors and it encourages you to better manage your, uh, where you are and what you're doing so that you can avoid uncontrollable asthma. In his little prototype, he cut uncontrollable asthma by over 50%. Folks, people with uncontrollable asthma cost the healthcare system $3,000 a year. Data, lowering costs, improving value, Dr. Van Sickle. Bob, Dave, and Andrew are three random dudes here in Silicon Valley who work for a company and found out about this open data business, looked for the largest file available. The largest file available was the Federal Register, which is the newspaper in legalese that tells you what's happening in Washington every day. These guys grabbed that data and turned what was only accessible to lawyers in Washington into a pretty simple to use and easy uh, web experience so that you and I can actually figure out what's happening in technology today. I actually use this. It's a heck of a lot better than reading the Federal Register in the normal way. Well, after they won the Apps for Innovation contest at the Consumer Electronics Association, three months later, the archivist of the United States, or AOTIS as we call him, picks up the phone and calls these guys and says, your design is a hell of a lot better than myfederalregister.gov. Could you take over the site? And they did. Bob, Dave, and Andrew came to the 75th anniversary ceremony for the uh, Federal Register, where they filmed the National Archives movie. What was it? National Treasure. You know, uh, that's pretty cool stuff. You know, they're sitting there on stage. Bob, Dave, and Andrew. Got to give them some love. Uh, <laughs> Professor Wolski had an idea to create an Amazon cloud for uh, universities, was successful in scaling it. His first customer was NASA. His proof of concept was funded by the government, and now he's launched a startup and he's become a wildly successful entrepreneur in eucalyptus systems. Katie Stanton. I love Katie Stanton. Katie Stanton came out of Google, came into Washington to work for us in the administration. Katie's now at Twitter, but during her tenure in Washington, you remember the crisis in Haiti? Folks, when Haiti went, when the earthquake hit Haiti, they lost any functional 911 service. No functional 911 service. Within three weeks, Katie organized a group of 40 entrepreneurs, nonprofits, innovators, many of whom are living here in Silicon Valley, and they created an instant 911 system. Folks could test, text message their problems to 4636 at no cost. That information was sent on the web. Entrepreneurs then allowed to find Creole to English translators, turning Creole to English, disseminating those messages throughout the, uh, uh, the recovery program. And wouldn't you know it, 40,000 messages were translated. Average turnaround time from when someone posted a problem to when they were addressed by a first responder, 10 minutes. In a world where they had no, e no 911 system. And our friends in healthcare, my friend Peter Levin, a startup uh, successful entrepreneur, created the Blue Button program that allows any veteran to download a copy of their personal health data safely and securely. Over 300,000 members of our active duty military, our VA and our Medicare populations have now downloaded their data because in 90 days, Peter and his entrepreneurial team came together and built the prototype. And now it's been wildly successful. The president mentioned it in the State of the Union. Arian Malik was a vice president at Relay Health. It turns out doctors couldn't email health records between each other because it violated uh, patient privacy and security. Arian came in to run a 90-day project to get the private sector to agree to a technical specification for safe, secure email called uh, the Direct Project. It was so wildly successful that one year to the day when we launched it, 95% of the vendors in the industry have pledged to adopt the protocol, a protocol built by Arian and his team. This is the story of Washington. These are the people that were gathering to build it 
And it is our goal, our hope that this infrastructure that we're building will support you as the innovators of the 21st century so that you could solve the health, energy, education challenges, become wildly financially successful at the same time and help your country. Thank you so much for your time. All right, I would love to hear any questions uh, you might have, skeptics, criticisms, cynics, uh, any, any feedback you have, I'm all over you. What, do you. what do you got? Yes, sir. Okay, not you, I'm just kidding. Uh, you may go first, yes, please. Um, so, so you talked about some areas where the government needs to innovate. We're still dealing with a banking system that's born in the industrial age. Yes regulated yes. that way. Yes. So some of us conceive of a bank bill for the information age called a high transparency ethical bank. Okay. Treasury is tone deaf. Um, the uh, Economic Council is tone deaf. These are, these are um, areas where we in Silicon Valley can do something more than PayPal or wait. It's sort of a satellite of banking. We can go straight into it. But we don't have an advocate. We don't have someone. So, so the question for those of you hearing is whether or not we could have a 21st century banking system that can uh, fit the needs of, of where we are today. So I don't have an easy answer to the question, but I'll make one observation. Uh, one of the president's uh, priority pieces of legislation was, the, was to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because there were too many tricks and traps in our credit card system. Your, your bill statements would change in terms of what you owed. You didn't quite know what the uh, reimbursement rates were and all the rest. Our mortgage system is kind of funky. You don't really know what your uh, interest payments are going to be as you go through your, uh, when, you, when you sign over your mortgage papers. There are a whole range of areas where we've had a lack of awareness and understanding and transparency. So in the spirit of a lean government startup, the agency won't even be officially born until July of 2011. Last week, they launched a cute little game called Know Before You're O. The law says we've got to change these mortgage forms and make them more user-friendly. If you visit knowbeforeyouo.gov, you can actually vote on different versions of what the new mortgage form should look like. If you click on one versus the other, it asks you for feedback, what's working and what's not working in the other case. So we're trying to bring a little startup feel to how the agency does its job, all towards making sure that we have a banking system that works. Now, leaving aside the question of how we regulate the banks, there's a broader question about whether or not we can incorporate modern capabilities like mobile wallets, NFC communications, and the like. And one of the policy tools we have that I didn't speak of, and I talked about challenge.gov, but the law allows the federal government to engage in, challenge, in prizes and competition policy so that now we can actually do some things to spur some innovation in areas that we hadn't thought. If you visit the Treasury Department's open government page, www.treasury.gov open, you can contribute your thoughts about what kind of challenges and prizes they might run to modernize the nation's banking system. Whether, I mean, who knows if the banking system in the future is run by your cell phone company? And that's one of the questions that is exciting, and I'd encourage you to participate. Other questions? Students? Yes, in the back. The efficient section for your uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, you mentioned something about stapling green cards for the uh, STEM students for. Uh, PhD and Masters, and something about the Startup Visa Act. Yes. What do you think is the timeline for those two to be actually implemented and students uh, take benefits of them? So the question is whether or not the policies that the President outlined in his speech on high-skilled immigration, specifically the ones around stapling and on Startup Visa, when might they come into fruition? Part of the challenge is that Congress has to take action. So. The reason the president delivered that speech and clarified the economic arguments for immigration reform was to create some space to have a civilized conversation in communities around the country, which hopefully would lead to some bottom-up support and therefore congressional engagement so that we could have a group of people that would want to think across the table about what's possible and how do we move this thing forward. What, what we, where we are right now is the current immigration system is broken and we all know this. Our economy is suffering because we haven't gotten this right. And the president is putting more attention on the fact that we need to address this and to do so now. I wish I was a political prognosticator to tell you if and when this 
law will pass, but the president has put his views on the table and is encouraging us to have these conversations neighborhood by neighborhood in the hopes that it will lead to some, some group of people coming to the table and negotiating in good faith. Having said that, we didn't want to leave the all to nothing in the sense of all, not everything we do is going to be based on, on, on waiting for a new law. We have also taken decisions that are in our administrative control. So, for example, if you're a graduate student, you could stay in this country for uh, OPT, uh, practical training. We've expanded the number of degrees that qualify for the 29-month OPT stay versus the traditional 12-month. And by expanding the number uh, in, in medical areas and in computer science and so forth, we hope a number of students can benefit today by expanded list of OPT uh, eligible uh, uh, fields. So we're able to do that, and we announced that about 10 days ago. Yes, sir. Uh, so you mentioned uh, network infrastructure as being key to growth. Yes. And uh, I was wondering what, uh, right now, most of the network infrastructure is private, and how do you foresee um, that evolving in the future? So the question is uh, network infrastructure. We absolutely embrace private sector digital infrastructure. The question is whether or not we have a, the right R&D mix. So if you look at uh, New Jersey, where I come from, thousands of engineers, including my dad, were part of this ecosystem that worked at Bell Labs, Bell Core, you name it. And those assets, let's just say they're not what they used to be. So the degree to which our networking infrastructure has had the kind of research and development emphasis over the last decade or so, the president has called for a portion of the incentive auction proceeds, roughly $3 billion of the $28 billion of expected proceeds if the spectrum legislation were to pass, to invest that, maybe 12% of the revenues or 10% into a research and development program run by the National Science Foundation and DARPA and uh, other agencies that are focused in this domain, all to take advantage of you as students, but also to enable the private sector to commercialize those great ideas and to design the new applications and infrastructure programs of the future. So that's the spirit, privately run, but juiced with some R&D. Yes, sir. Practically everyone I know would rather be an entrepreneur in one of these fields than go off and just, you know, work for someone or the man or whatever. <laughs> or the woman. But there are other, I don't know. But there are other problems besides just having the open information and the encouragement and support from the government yes. to becoming entrepreneurs, such as, uh, such as affording health care yes. or rent in the Bay Area. How, how can you help us with those concerns? You know, it's really funny that you mentioned that. One of the unintended consequences of the President's Affordable Care Act was to allow students to uh, stay on their parents' health insurance until the age of 26. We've gotten a ton of feedback for young people, typically undergraduates, who are now leaving college to start a business because they don't have to worry about their health insurance because they can stay on their parents' plan. That's live right now. You can qualify for that, at that service. We didn't quite realize that that might be an enabler for entrepreneurship. So uh, that is the short answer. Startup America Partnership is finding other creative ways to support, nurture, nudge, encourage uh, folks to actually get going. And that's what I meant. If you visited startupamericapartnership.org, you can see the litany of private commitments that have been made to support those individuals. In the back. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm currently in a global biodesign class that is basically projected that medical innovation is... Is there a professor, Dr. Uday Kumar, by chance? Yeah! He's the man, sitting right over here. Um, well, I, the question was whether or not the FDA's regulatory policies are shifting innovation overseas. And it's a very thoughtful question and I appreciate it. The, the FDA has un, uh, released a set of unprecedented transparency provisions to disclose what it is that they're doing operationally. They haven't had any law changes uh, in this administration except for the expansion of, of the ability to manage tobacco uh, and some food safety items. But in terms of what you're describing, it's the same FDA as it was uh, you know, years ago. So the question is whether or not the FDA has been uh, forward-leaning enough in reform so that it can encourage uh, innovations to thrive in the U.S. 
It is for that reason that in January they unveiled the Innovation Pathway, a new strategy to streamline and simplify applications into the FDA that have the potential to serve uh, big challenges in our current uh, biomedical and device uh, space. So we're hopeful the Innovation Pathway will address some of these concerns. We've certainly heard a great deal of feedback and I can assure you the leadership under Dr. Hamburg is taking them seriously and looking for ways we can improve our internal capacities. So I appreciate the question. Other students, yes? I take the same class and another big problem that we face is that we, we have a lot of ideas that are certain to improve healthcare and the system, but they do not constitute the 500 million or billion dollar market that the VC needs to fund us. And we just keep wondering, yes, we can do something, but we don't have the funds. Uh, can the government help us? So the question is on the business case for innovations that may not have the market size to compel private capital. Harder question. I would answer that in three parts. Part number one, some of those uh, devices and products actually are investments one would make if I was encouraged to keep people healthy and out of the hospital. So it is possible that the accountable care organizations who will organize and build the programming, if you will, might on their own choose to adopt products and services under a different reimbursement regime because those products and services are actually going to be helpful to keeping me uh, safe. And so that has a category of impact to the investor's thesis that I think would be uh, relevant to, to the market discussion. Second, we are investing in research and development proof of concept centers. Uh, the Commerce Department issued out a challenge grant to promote uh, uh, all kinds of commercialization activities and a million dollars was awarded to a value-based engineering program in Akron, Ohio, focused on medical devices that could be engineered in the United States to tackle other sectors that perhaps have been more unmet need. And they have been collaborating with Dr. Kumar and others to find ways in which Akron, Ohio might be a hub <coughs> for some of those startups. And so there's an ecosystem forming there where there are resources that have been gathered to support proof of concepts. And then third, uh, in our increasingly global economy, it is, it is likely or possible that innovations that serve global needs might be modified and enhanced at scale and brought back to the U.S. to serve domestic needs. That is a trend known as reverse innovation, and we're taking a great deal of interest in understanding that trend, thinking about that trend, and, and engaging in, an, in, a common, in a spirit of open innovation about that. Tina's gonna about to pull the plug. Last question or done? Uh, okay, yeah, this guy right here in the uh, blue shirt. Yeah, you. Oh, you, brother. Yeah, you. <laughs> I'm trying to launch a project that enables cutting the global uh, oil consumption by 20 or 30%. Oil consumption by? By 20 or 30%. Hell yeah, you are, by, brother. What's your name? Give me your card. By changing the usage of ground, ground, uh, ground, ground, uh, ground transportation system. But uh, always the uh, problem with the politics because the, our politicians have to change the traffic rule to enable, enable armed autonomous ground vehicles to operate in the public space. But uh, many politicians have lack of the incentive to change the rule. So if you would uh, become a president, uh, would you uh, decline or accept the proposal? Uh, so the, I didn't get all the mechanics of the question, but it was about an innovative model to lower fuel consumption, dealing with autonomous vehicles on the road, and how we integrate vehicle-to-vehicle uh, -vehicle communications and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications. Ironic that you mentioned this, <coughs> because on Monday, I held a roundtable of CTOs from Mercedes-Benz, Toyota, Nissan, GM, Chrysler, their stakeholders in between, to ask the question, how might we kickstart smart transportation. That is, how might we get the infrastructure to communicate with vehicles, vehicle to vehicle, and everything in between? Because, as part of that wireless innovation fund I outlined where we were going to invest the three billion dollars from the spectrum proceeds, we allocated a hundred million of it to the question you just asked. How might we modernize our transportation system uh, by creating more capacity through commercial communications technologies so that we can in fact introduce some of these uh, savings? It turns out, Tina, UPS trucks save money by turning right. If you build your routes to turn right, you're not idle at the left turn. What's up with that innovation? 
So uh, this is something that we're very focused on. Uh, we have a research and development arm in the Department of Transportation. It's called RITA. Look at my blog to see all the people, whitehouse.gov slash CTO, and you can contact any of the entrepreneurs who, CTOs who came to visit my uh, uh, summit and ask them if any of the private stakeholders might participate in your work. Thank you so much for having me, and good luck. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.